WDBM East Lansing. Hello and welcome to Exposure on Impact 89FM, the show where we talk to members of organizations at Michigan State University and nonprofit organizations in the East Lansing area. We strive to promote diversity, freedom of expression, and resources to MSU students. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Exposure. I'm your host, Stephanie, and today we wanted to talk to Dr. Michael Gillen about his involvement with the God's Not Dead tour. So last year, we had the opportunity to interview him and talk to him about this event that's coming up. So they're coming back to campus on Wednesday at 7 p.m., and they're going to, oops, sorry, 7.30. Hmm. This is no good. Okay. So they're coming back. No. I gotta find this event. All right. So they're coming back to campus. They're gonna be at the business college at 7 30, and they're going to talk to you guys again about faith as well as science. So in order to highlight this event that's happening, we thought it would be fun to re-air the interview. So please enjoy as George, our good pal George, and I talk to Michael Gillen. Michael, how are you doing today? You know what? I just got off an airplane and I'm feeling pretty good. I'm just delighted to be here with you guys. You're fun. Looking forward <laughs> to our conversation. Oh, sure. Thanks for coming in. My really pleasure. My it. pleasure. Well. All right, so you want to talk about your affiliation with this God's Not Dead book and with Dr. Rice Brooks? Yeah. Well, you know, Rice and I met about three, four years ago. I had just moved from Los Angeles to Nashville, and we discovered mm -hmm. we were neighbors. Uh, one thing led to another. He actually invited me to have coffee, and it, I thought it was going to take about a half hour, and it ended up being like a six-hour meeting. No joke. <laughs> wow. And he just, you know, just told me all about what he was doing on college campuses. And, you know, I, I've done a lot in my life. Uh, I've, I'm a, as you say, I have a Ph.D. in physics, math, and astronomy. I, I taught physics at Harvard. I was the science correspondent at ABC News, did Good Morning America, Nightline 2020, all the rest of it. But um, I had been away from college for a number of years because I was mostly on television. And so when, he, when Rice, uh, when Dr. Brooks invited me to join him in these college presentations, I really, I thought, yeah, let's do this. And so I'm, sure. I'm loving it because it's just taking me right back to the classroom. And I, I love talking to young people. I have a 19-year-old son myself. And so I have some rough idea of how hard life is for, <laughs> for you guys. You know, I, I thought I, I grew up in a tough world, but... Uh, you guys are you're growing up in a tough world. Yeah. yeah, well, and it always changes from, you know, generation to generation. It does, but yeah. Can you talk a little bit about how your faith influences your work? I mean, you've worked as a professor as well as, you know, just in mm -hmm. the world of science. Yeah. just want to, first of all, say that I wasn't always a um, Christian. I am now. Um, all through grad school, I really was just a scientific monk. I lived for science. That's mm -hmm. all I cared about. But now my faith informs just about everything that I do and that I am. Number one, it, it informs how I treat other people. I I strive to treat others the way I want to be treated. I don't always, you know, hit a bullseye. 
right. um, because I'm imperfect, I'm human. But that's important to me. And when I was producing a movie uh, a few years back, it's called Little Red Wagon, I would invite anybody who wants to be uplifted and feel good about the, about the human species to, re to watch Little Red Wagon. Um, I made certain that you know everybody on set uh, felt like we were part of a family. It was important to me as a Christian to set um, an example to how everybody should be treated. I was right. on the set day and night. I made sure everybody had what they needed and so forth. And uh, but it also um, it also gets me on an airplane. I mean, I don't like <laughs> traveling. I I've traveled to I don't know. I've lost count the number of countries all over all the world. Over. I, yeah, <laughs> I've been to the North Pole. I've been to the South Pole. I've been to the Atlantic, bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. I, wow. I've just done so many crazy things that, you know, I'm kind of traveled out. But right. um, so my faith is why I'm here, truthfully, because I live in a very comfortable place in Dallas, Texas, on a seven-acre farm, and I could easily just uh, live an easy life. I've worked really hard all my life. Um, but my faith... Uh, urges me to, to come and speak to you guys. I, I As I said earlier, it's a tough world. You're full of very um, fake news, as they say. There's a lot of fake information, very unreliable information out there, and so I try to speak the truth. So that's two, two of the ways that my faith informs my life now. Absolutely. And you have a triple PhD, so what drove yeah. you to get that? Well, I didn't intend to, Stephanie. I'm just an overachiever. I have been. <laughs> I, I, you know, I was born in East L.A. in the middle of the Mexican barrio. I'm Mexican, Spanish, Cuban, with a little bit of Austrian. And so growing up in the Mexican barrio of East L.A., I mean, I never met a scientist, but I had this desire to be one since I was seven years old. And uh, I guess it was that, that overachieving spirit that I, I was born with, I guess. Um, I think of it now in terms of a gift from God mm -hmm. as a Christian. Um, that took me from East L.A. to UCLA to Cornell, where I got my Ph.D.s, and then ultimately to Harvard, as I indicated. I went to Cornell with the intention of becoming a high-energy physicist. That's all I wanted to be. They had a cyclotron there, a synchrotron, rather. Um, an atom, uh, so It's a kind of atom smasher. It was one of the few universities at the time that had one on campus. It still is one of the few. Um, but as I got there, I started asking uh, some questions, and I, I realized I needed a lot more math, and, uh, and I started asking questions about the galaxies. Some stuff, stuff was going on with galaxies that interested me a great deal, so I, I knew I had to have a lot of astronomy. So I ended up with a committee of faculty on all three departments, and in the last final four-hour uh, Ph.D. exam, mm. uh, those professors from the three departments could ask me any question for four hours. They grilled me. And uh, that's that was fun. I survived. I'm survived. <laughs> I'm here. <laughs> right. And, and you it was quite, quite right. an experience. Yeah. And you certainly strike me as well, obviously a lifelong learner. Yeah. And kind of touching back on what you said, like you know, after grad school, you know, mm -hmm. you kind of you called yourself a scientific monk. Right. Like, what experience or what kind of challenge to kind of like explore your faith? Why was that the next step after grad well, school? Well, as I said, I when I said I, I was a scientific uh, monk, um, I I meant it. I I. Got up at about 6 in the morning. I was in a small dorm room, a single room near near the bathroom, so I liked it. I had my privacy. Right. It was a really tiny room, tinier than the studio that we're sitting in. <laughs> Seriously. I mean, there was room for a single bed, a desk, and a dresser, oh, sure. and that's it. That okay? sounds like my dorm upstairs. Okay, <laughs> so you know what I'm talking about. Yep. Right. Um, and uh, so I would go to my lab, um, which is in the basement of LNS, the Lab of Nuclear Studies there at Cornell, and I would be there until about 3 in the morning. Mm -hmm. And I'd hardly eat. I had no social life. I wasn't interested in a social life. I was just happy. I was living out my dream. And uh, 
I would say about second year into my grad studies, I started asking a very simple question, and that is, hey, I'm studying about this fabulous universe uh, from the tiniest to the largest scales, and uh, wonder how it all came about. And I knew, of course, science was offering me the answer that it was all just a very elegant um, accident. Right. And I, I contemplated that as a possibility and did some calculations. and. It was pretty clear to me that that wasn't a satisfying answer. Uh, again, I wasn't at all religious. I was just a scientific monk, but it was just not intellectually satisfying. It seemed like a bit of a cop-out to me. So I remember going to school. I, uh, Carl Sagan was an astronomer at Cornell when I was a student there, and he was just becoming famous, and he would talk about the Vedas. And I didn't know what that was, and this was pre-Google. And so I thought, okay, well, maybe I can find answers uh, apart from what science is offering. Right. Um, in the kind of the spiritual world. So I started with Vedas. I discovered that that's the sacred literature of the Hindu religion, uh, arguably the ol oldest re religion on earth. So then somebody gave me a copy of the I Ching, so I started doing that, and I went into Islam, was, uh, studied that, and my professor was Jewish, so I started going to sh uh, Shabbat services on Friday night. And uh, so in the midst of all that craziness, uh, one morning I traipsed back to my dorm room. It was about three in the morning, typically. And as I opened the door, I heard a scraping sound underneath. I looked down, and there was a white envelope with my name on it. And I uh, opened the envelope, and lo and behold, it was a Valentine's Day card. I didn't even know it was Valentine's Day. By then, mm -hmm. it was mostly over, and uh, or was over at three in the morning. It was the <laughs> previous day. So um, what intrigued me was that it was signed by a um, female named Laurel Lucas, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember she was in my recitation class a couple of years before, and uh, anyway, so she was Kappa Kappa Gamma and beautiful girl. You've seen the movie Beauty and the Beast? <laughs> so as you're listening to this, picture Beauty and the Beast, and I'll leave it up to you which is which. <laughs> I, I was definitely <laughs> not the her. beauty, I you know, it, yeah. I mean, tight jeans, afro, I mean, it's ridiculous. I just I, recalling the story, it's ridiculous that this beautiful Kappa Kappa Gamma undergrad would have any interest in me. So I went to thank her, and one thing led to another. I told her about the, my searching for an answer to the simple question, where did the universe come from? And she said, well, have you read the Bible? And I'm like, eh, not really. It's not interesting to me. It's not exotic, like the I Ching and like right. the Transcendental Meditation International and all the other uh, – uh, belief systems that I had explored with both feet up until then. And she said, well, you know what? And she, she, she said something that changed my life forever. And she said, look, if you read it, I'll read it with you. Wow. And, you know, I wasn't as stupid as I looked, and I looked pretty stupid. <laughs> uh, and so I said, you know, it's a deal. It took us two years to read, and sure. um, it was a game changer for me. And so that was where I acquired my faith. So whereas a lot of kids today are – maybe raised in a Christian home and they go to college and they lose their faith. <laughs> I was just right. the opposite. I went in with no faith and I found my faith in college. How crazy is that? That is wow. crazy. Yeah. Also, just a reminder for our listeners, this is WDBM East Lansing. You're listening to Exposure and today we are talking to Dr. Michael Gillen. Great. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you did talk about how you became a Christian in college. Can you give an example since then when your faith has been challenged and how you dealt with that? Yeah, after um, Laurel and I got married, <clears throat> we ended up getting married. Oh, that's and great. yeah, and we've we've been together for about like twenty seven years. It's really been cool. And um, I think one of the darkest things uh, for us, uh, Stephanie, was when we tried to have kids, we couldn't. 
-hmm. And being a Hispanic family is really important to me, really important to me. I always imagined having a big family, and uh, mm -hmm. it just wasn't happening for us. And so that's, um, you know, I wondered, you know, hey, God, what's, what's going on here? You know, sure. why, right. why can't I have kids? Laurel and I were both, you know, just opening our hearts, opening our homes to having a big family, and it just didn't happen. But in the end, we ended up adopting the most wonderful little boy, and uh, he's the love of my life. Uh, he's the 19-year-old, and he's just a great, great kid. So even though my faith was tested a great deal, um, it's, um, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been a blessing and a, it's been a blessing and a half. It's, I, I can't get into the whole story, but it, it, it's no. been an amazing journey. Awesome. Wow. And you also talked about traveling a lot and yeah. being from, you know, the North Pole to the South Pole to yeah. the bottom of the ocean. Right. So I was told that you got to deep dive and visit the Titanic. Yeah, I was assigned the story. Um, I was going to do it for 2020. Um, and uh, they so we, we flew to Halifax, Canada, met up with a Russian research ship, the Academic Keldish. We uh, steamed out to the North Atlantic. And we were on station there for about 10 days. And during that 10 days, um, yes, I went inside a small three-man sub. Um, our pilot was a Russia, a former uh, MiG pilot named Victor. Mm -hmm. And so it was me and this other guy, Brian Cook, from, from England. And we went down <clears throat> to look at the Titanic. When the Titanic uh, sank, it broke into two pieces. Right. And it opened up like a pinata. And a lot of stuff that was inside fell uh, in between the two pieces. So the, the bow fell down, and, and then the stern, the back portion of the ship, kind of did a somersault and landed about, I, I can't remember exactly, but it, uh, uh, quite a distance from the bow. And in between the bow and the stern, there's something called the debris field, and this is where you see women's shoes and medicine cabinets and crates of unopened champagne and right. uh, valises and furniture. It was quite a sight. So after... Visiting the bow, we went across the debris field towards the stern. And what I, I'll never forget is in front of me was this big propeller. And it's uh, like polished brass. And I thought, gee, you know, it's been down in the ocean for quite a long time. It's surprising that it's so polished and mm -hmm. so nice and shiny. And then next thing I noticed is that we were approaching it really fast. I would have thought he'd be slowing down as we approached it. And the mm. next thing I knew, there was a collision, and stuff started falling down. We were only looking out a small porthole, uh, maybe about six inches across. Right. But my vision was obscured completely with just um, just chunks of rusted metal just kind of um, falling in front of my uh, my um, porthole. And so uh, we were stuck down there for about 45 minutes, and I thought to myself, you know, this is how it's going to end for me. I mean, that, that sentence came into my head. This is how it's going to end for you. Right. Then I thought of Laurel, and then I thought um, I worried about my diving partner, Brian, um, worried that he might panic and go for the hatch and allow the water in. Ooh. That would have been instant death for us. So I reposition. You're, you're laying down looking at a porthole. You're laying on your stomach. So I kind of repositioned myself on the couch um, to, in case I saw Brian panicking and heading to the – I was ready to gang tackle him. <laughs> so after uh, – after about 45 minutes to an hour, we noticed something had happened. Up until then, Victor was nudging the sub forward and then back, forward and back. Like if you get a car stuck in the mud, you try mm -hmm. to rock right. it out of there. Totally. Uh -huh. Yeah, and you could hear the engine laboring, brrr, 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 and stuff falling down. 
And then after about 45 minutes to an hour, it quieted down, and we thought, hmm, something's going on. But we didn't want to say anything to Victor because we didn't want to disturb him. He was really concentrating on things, and you could tell that. He was communicating with a surface through sonar, very spooky-sounding stuff, uh, only added to the whole drama. And um, after a while, it seemed like we were loose and we were floating, so I turned to Victor, and I, I just said, okay. And then he looked at me, and he smiled big. He says, no problem. <laughs> and uh, so he asked us at that point whether we wanted to keep uh, touring the Titanic. Well, by then we had been down there for, I don't know, about three, four hours. So we both said, no, no, take us up, take us up, take us up. <laughs> yeah, so after something like that, it makes sense. But yeah, I, I mean, I, it's got to be terrifying being down there for that long, too. Like, are you Yeah. Yeah, and it takes two, uh, Stephanie, it takes two and a half hours to get down there. And I'm you cork you corkscrew down for a reason. And then, so I knew it was going to be, even if we said to him, as we did, no, take us back up, it was going to be another two and a half hours. So we just, we'd had enough by then, and we were both a little bit, uh, well, we'd had seen enough of the Titanic. It was just a weird feeling, thinking that I was going to join all those people who died in the Titanic. Yeah. I mean, all these images. But I think for me now, as a Christian, when I look at that story, what it makes me think of is how calm I was. And sure. I wonder where that calmness came from. And it's I think it's just because of my faith. And it was the feeling that, okay, I know death is not the end. It's just, uh, it's a transition. As I, I often say, it's not a terminus, it's a transition. Mm -hmm. In right. physics, we talk about phase transition. So I think of, a, of an ice cube. If you apply heat to an ice cube, it slowly kind of ages and dies. It kind of melts. But the ice cube dies, but the water doesn't go away. It just, it turns into another uh, form of matter, liquid in this case. So mm -hmm. um, I think of that when I read the Bible and speaks about there being life after death. In my scientific mind, I think of it that way, that death is a kind of a, what we call a phase transition, that uh, we go from one state of matter to another. So I knew down there in the Titanic, even though I was calculating how much oxygen we had left and how much more likely we were going to be able to survive, I just thought, you know, uh, it's going to be kind of interesting, you know, to cross over and see what it's all about. And uh, was kind of excited about that. It was in a little strange way. Yeah. Uh, but so my faith helped keep me calm and uh, right. didn't, didn't stress out. But that was pretty cool. That's, that's <laughs> to me, just so interesting. And even the fact that, like, you know, obviously you have your wife at home, you have all your oh, kids yeah. at home. And yeah. with, with events like that, and you, t you just touched on it with that whole experience, how are you able to kind of, you know, remind yourself just to see God through kind of the, the daily happenings of life and, and science in our modern society, given how kind of the world treats everything very, I don't know what the proper term is, I suppose, controversially today? That might be a good one. I mean, yeah, especially because religion and science are often at odds, mm -hmm. I feel like, in our world today. So it's like, how do you see all of this beautiful, you know, you look outside, you see the world as it is, and it's beautiful, and you see mm -hmm. God in it, but you also see science, and how do you make those combine, I guess, in your life today? It's easy for me. <laughs> um, I, I think you used the word religion, and I, I would hope that your listeners would distinguish between religion and the Bible. Um, the Bible, for me, is um, a very interesting book. I've studied it a lot, just like I've studied so many textbooks in physics and math and astronomy and on and on and on. It's not a textbook in the, in the sense that it's not a science textbook, but it's, it's a book of, uh, of truths. 
And one of the things that I did uh, several years ago is write a book called Amazing Truths, How Science and the Bible Agree. And I think that for me was a real eye-opener, that when I started reading the Bible seriously, I started recognizing truths in the Bible that I was studying as a, as a grad student and as a scientist. And so as you look at relativity and you look at quantum mechanics and, and all the rest of it, you, uh, it's, it's amazing how there's absolutely no conflict. I mean, there isn't. So it's not hard for me to coexist peacefully between um, maintaining my Christian beliefs and uh, ma maintaining my devotion to science. It's, it's really quite easy. For, I, I don't think most people—I'll be honest with you. I think most people are just too lazy to do that. I don't think they're going to put the time into it. I don't think uh, most people who who rail against uh, Christianity have even bothered to read the Bible. It's kind of pathetic, actually. I mean, above all, I'm an intellectual, mm -hmm. and and I'm devoted to the truth. And if, if you're interested in the truth about anything, it doesn't even have to be about God or science. It just If you're just interested in the truth, you've got to do your homework. Right. You can't just listen to other people. You can't even just listen to me. Uh, in, in the end, you've got to do the heavy lifting, and I have. I, I've done it over the last four decades, and I can just tell you honestly that for me it's effortlessly. When I walk out and I see a rainbow, let's say, at the end of a thunderstorm, I, I think of, you know, the fact I, – I think of the physics, the, uh, you know, the reflection, the refraction, the diffraction that's involved in, in creating a rainbow and the 42-degree angle that it has to be from the sun and so forth. I mean, uh, that all that goes through my kind of scientific brain, but at the same time, I marvel at the rainbow. I remember when I was teaching at Harvard, I would ask my kids, what if it rained plastic on another planet? How would the rainbow look different? Or would there even be rainbows? Sure. So you can, you, you, you know, there is, for me, I have this kind of double-fisted appreciation for the universe because I see it not only with my IQ, but I also see it with my SQ, my spiritual quotient. And I, I've written a book called God's, um, Can a Smart Person Believe in God? And I, and I talk about SQ. I introduce the concept. I even have an SQ test in there. So I just pity somebody who just kind of relies either just on their SQ or, or just on their IQ because they're just missing out on they're missing out on the universe um, in, in its full glory. So for me, it's effortless. I see it every day. It's beautiful. Well, it's really interesting to see how you come from a science perspective and your faith and mm -hmm. that you have never stopped learning because mm -hmm. learning is so important. Mm -hmm. um, I'm excited for your event. Okay. Just as a reminder, the God's Not Dead group are coming to campus. They're going to be at the Business College in room N130 this Wednesday at 7.30 p.m. So if you're interested at all to learn more about um, the Christian faith and how it relates to science and how, you know, just have this open-ended discussion of your opinions and how people believe, I would highly recommend going. By the way, Stephanie, it's been a joy talking to you two guys and just, um, we don't have the time to get into so much stuff. We're going to get into it, some of it in the event. I mm -hmm. encourage people to check me out on Twitter, Dr. M. Gillen, or my Facebook page, or michaelgillen.com, if it's easier, and they can direct you to my Twitter page. But it's not, um, it's not living uh, comfortably with faith and science, because science requires faith as well. Mm -hmm. right. If we had more time, we could get into that. It's not, that's not the dichotomy. It's, it's more subtle than that. But... Uh, for me, um, 
It's life at its best because I see it, as I say, both with my IQ and my SQ, and I encourage you, your, your listeners to, to try it out. Yeah, again, this is WDBM East Lansing. You are listening to Exposure, and we were talking to Dr. Michael Gillen. One more thing before you head out here. So once someone believes that God is real and they see mm-hmm. how, you know, science proves that, how do you suggest they go about, you know, exploring their faith, especially with, you know, it is Easter Sunday today. So mm-hmm. how would they talk about, you know, the proof behind the resurrection as well as coincide like their beliefs with daily life? And, and specifically kind of under the lens of you mentioned it earlier, just how kind of there's a different there's a different sense in kind of growing up for younger audiences today. Yeah. Like how, how does that equate into kind of you know, the day to day of like a, a college student? Yeah. Right Sorry, lots of questions. No, there. no, 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 but good ones, good ones. Uh, I kind of missed that from my Harvard days. I would always ask the kids, just give me your best ones. You know, just hit me with your best shots. <laughs> right, you yeah. Know, I, I just, I feed off of good questions, and mm-hmm. those are excellent questions you're asking. First of all, Stephanie, science doesn't prove anything, okay? Um, science is not in the business of proving. It cannot prove anything. It can demonstrate something. It can illustrate something. It can probe something. So that's number one. I just want to make sure your your listeners are clear on that. Um so if you're waiting around for science to prove anything, not just God, but just anything, you're, you're going to die, and it's never going to happen. Yeah. Um, in terms of what students can do, I, I'm a big believer, as I say, because I'm an intellectual, um, in going to the primary literature. Because whenever you go to a secondary literature, then you're getting somebody's opinion about right. something, right? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So you know, if you go to church, let's say um, the, the uh, preacher or the person delivering the message will give you their take on what the Bible says. Completely, right. I just crack open, do what I did. Crack open the Bible. Just read it for yourself. Read it for yourself with an open mind. That's where I would start. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I just believe that there's no substitute for you deciding for yourself. And I say to my son, ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask questions. I ask questions all the time. That's how I maintain the strength of my faith. I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of any question. I'm not afraid of anybody because I know what's out there. I know the scientific landscape. Right. And I know that there is nothing in science right now or on the horizon that even comes close to discrediting the Bible or the existence of God. There just isn't. But I know that because I've done my homework. Now, you listeners out there might like, oh, well, I'm not so sure. Well, do your homework. <laughs> Do your homework. Don't take my word for it. You shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, that's how I would start. And, I, you know, um, there's, there are a lot of good books. You know, you can read my books, but not necessarily my books. There, there are a lot of really good books out there. Um, I'd also, if, if you are somebody out there who has the intellectual curiosity to really find out for yourself if God exists or not, uh, then hook up with some student group. I'm, is there a Christian group here in oh, Michigan State? Oh, a yeah. lot Total, of them. Many. Uh, and, yeah. and, and go to that. And if you want to, then do what I did. Go to the, the Muslim group and go to the, uh, the uh, Buddhist group and the, right. and the Hindu group. And then, again, decide for yourself because unless you can own your faith, it's phony. Right. Take it, don't, don't take anybody's word for it. Don't let anybody spoon food you anything. And the reason I am so secure in my beliefs, both as a scientist and as a Christian— is because I've done the homework. I have done the exploration. So I, I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I can't be rattled by anybody. I'm just rock solid. <laughs> oh, totally. But, yeah. But more than that, that takes work, you know, to get there. And I feel yeah. like faith is partly intellectual, but it's also, you know, 
the acting and everyday life and how do you recommend that students you know continue to stay faithful to what they believe in in everyday life because you know in college there's opportunities to try all kinds of things you know yeah. and it's like how do you stay positive within your faith and true to your beliefs while also being in this world as it is well i would say first figure out what you believe and why you believe it because faith the best kind of faith is based on evidence um you know i don't i don't i don't have blind faith i have evidence for my faith right um i would say again once you've decided what you believe in you just have to be strong and again don't fear any questions if somebody asks you a question that kind of rattles you okay that's fine but then go do the homework to get to the bottom of it, why is it rattling me? Or right. you know, they can they can reach out to somebody like me or Dr. Brooks. That's uh, one of the reasons why we're holding these events on campus is because we want kids to see that um, uh, there are others out there who are very solid in their faith, and we hope to be role models to you guys. Um, that it, it, to maintain your faith is just to do your homework and to be and to do your homework to figure out what you're going to believe in and then just stick to it. And if somebody asks you a question, as I said, then reach out to somebody like me or Dr. Brooks or, or, or books that are out there and see see if an answer, uh, see if there's an answer for that. Um, but I, I, I prefer somebody who, who can tell me what they believe in as, as opposed to somebody who says, well, you know, I don't know what I believe. Oh, wishy-washy. Well, right. Yeah, because that to me is you've been given a first-class brain. Use it. <laughs> and you can only sit on the fence for so long. I think that's just a cop-out. It's like make a decision. Just make a decision. But it has to be based on evidence, Stephanie. It has to be. It can't just, well, like one day, oh, I'm going to be a Christian. No, I don't believe in that. And I know a lot of people come through to Christianity in different ways. Some have real emotional experiences, really kind of uh, uh, Paul on his way to Damascus type experiences. Oh, yeah. Others come to it, like me, through their minds. But remember what the Bible says. It's the renewal of the mind. That's where the conversion really happens. So even if you have an emotional experience, the renewing has to come through the mind. Yeah, it's when it's talking it about through. being born again. It's kind of that similar Yes, yes, topic. yes. But I want to be available to to young people who have questions or who find themselves tottering. You know, maybe they they're new Christians and they're like, Ooh, I don't know. Reach out to me, Facebook or Twitter. I'm, I'd be happy, you know, to reply. I I have a lot of people on my Facebook page, especially, and um, I I'd be happy to be there for you. So and that awesome. Facebook page is Dr. Michael Gillen, Ph.D. Correct? That's what I found here. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Facebook. Yeah. Michael yep. Gillen, PhD. And then uh, Twitter is at Dr. M. Gillen. It's G-U-I-L-L-E-N. G-U-I-L-E-N. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I was just about to spell that myself. Yeah. There's more on the internet about me than you care to know. Right? Don't don't <laughs> believe half of it. <laughs> I've been Unless around you do your for... research. I think that's the... <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, do that's your research the moral stuff today. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> but I want to encourage kids to be their own person. Like I tell my son, I don't want him to be a mini-me. I, I, oh, yeah. he, he's entitled his own life. I've, I've had a chance to have my own life. I, I need him to ask questions and do the homework, decide what you believe in, and then just stick to it. And it'll be easy for you to stick to it if it's on solid ground. If one day you just decide, you know, uh, willy-nilly that you're going to believe in something, of course that's going to be shaky, and it's going to be hard to hang on to. But if you do your homework, if you think through what you believe, then it's going to be harder to shake your – it's going to be hard to shake your world. It really is. You know, the old parable, or what is it, the, the fairy tale with the three pigs built oh, yeah. on, what is it, on 
sand or stone or made yeah. made their houses out yeah, of yeah. straw brick and yeah straw straw brick and something something, something wood else. wood right <laughs> yeah oh man yeah. I can't believe I so you want to build you want to build your faith on something solid so it isn't easily rocked I, right. I think that's the key. Yeah, well, I just want to thank you so much for coming in and that you guys are putting on these events so students can come in and ask questions, you know, whether they know anything about Christianity or they know a decent amount. There, it's an open space to talk about right. things based on, you know, science as well as, you know, the truths of the Bible. And Right. Yeah, we don't want just Christians attending these things. The whole point <laughs> yeah. is actually anybody who's at all curious. And one of the things that concerns me, guys, is that a lot of young people, studies show, a lot of young people are not even bothering to think about questions like, does God exist? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? They're not even asking the questions. Right. How are you going to find answers if you don't even bother to take a break from your daily routine to ask these big questions? So mm -hmm. I want to encourage kids out there to start there. Start asking questions. Go to the primary literature and build something on solid ground. Build a, a worldview. Build a belief system on solid ground. I found it in the Bible. Awesome. Well, Michael, thank, thank you. you so much for coming in today. Again, I just wanted to thank Dr. Gillen for taking time to talk to us. And again, if you are interested as students or people part of the community, you're welcome to come to the God's Not Dead events here at MSU. It's going to be at the Business College this Wednesday, November 6th at 7.30 p.m., uh, once you get to the business college, you'll have to look for room N130, and the presentation will be in there. Dr. Rice Brooks is the author of the book, God's Not Dead, and he will be presenting um, information about faith and science along with Dr. Gillen. It's a good opportunity to just just like learn a little bit more if you have questions about faith and science and how they can interact, or if you're wondering what the Christian faith is all about, um, it's a good place to go. They also have an open-ended open -ended discussion time afterwards, so if you have questions, you're free to ask. If you want to hear our interview in the past with Dr. Rice Brooks in his book, God's Not Dead, feel free to check out our website, impact89fm.org, and if you search under exposure, you should be able to find the previous interviews with Dr. Rice Brooks. Again, thank you so much for tuning in this morning. I just wanted to give a shout out to our general manager, Jeremy Whiting, our station manager and assistant station manager, Olivia Mitchell and Joe Dandron, as well as our news department, Sophie Sagan and Taylor Heatherman, as well as our program directors, Amber Kanutsky and George McNeil. Thank you for your participation as well as support of Exposure. Until next time. And there you have it, another episode of Exposure in the Books. If you missed anything, feel free to check out our website at impact89fm.org where you can find our weekly Exposure podcast. Also, if you would like to come visit us and talk about your respected organization at MSU or a nonprofit organization in the East Lansing area, please feel free to contact us, again, on our website at impact89fm.org. And don't forget to connect with us on social media for current news and updates happening in our community. Just search for Impact89FM. Thanks for listening.
Good morning, everyone. You're listening to The Sci-Files, an exposure segment featuring Michigan State University student research. We're your co-hosts, Chelsea Boudou and Daniel Puentes. This morning, we're joined by Michael Pecos. Michael, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, Chelsea. I'm a third-year graduate student here at Michigan State, and I'm studying astrophysics. Thanks for stopping by, Michael. Uh, what in particular are you studying about astrophysics? So I'm looking at the explosive endings of a star's life. And the ones in particular that we're looking at are not ones like our sun, but they're made of much more material. You can kind of think of them as the big brother or someone who watches over our sun because they're made up of so much more mass. Now, the endings of a star, one one our sun and one these big ones, is quite different. Our sun will gradually puff up and it will cool down. But these ones are much more explosive. They're a lot more violent in a way because they're a lot very unstable when they run out of fuel. And so when you think of stars, you can just think of them like engines in a car. In order to run the car, we put some fuel in and we can go so far down the road. With stars, it's kind of the same way. They have so much fuel that they can use, and at the end of it, they go kaput. In this case, these things just explode. You mentioned that you particularly focus the death of a star, but I'm wondering, how does the life of a star look? That's an interesting thing to think about because... A lot of what I work on on a day-to-day basis are just those last few moments, how a star experiences uh, its life, if you will. And throughout the course of it, though, it has a very interesting beginning. So we begin with some kind of cloud, if you will, a cloud of gas, and it's mostly made of hydrogen, uh, like you would find in a blimp or a balloon, maybe. And over time, this hydrogen will slowly pull in on itself, kind of snowball. That's what the force of gravity will do. It pulls it together. As it gets pulled together, you can imagine with a pressure cooker, as time goes on, it will get crunched more and more, and that temperature goes higher and higher and higher. Eventually, that temperature will cause it to ignite in a sense where you have this nuclear burning where a lot of heat is being released at one time. That is the typically in astronomy where we define a star beginning its life. So the sun We have a pretty good idea. It began its burning around four and a half billion years ago, and it maintains roughly its spherical shape. Now, it's interesting, though, to astronomers and other people who are astronomy enthusiasts, is that as time goes on, the sun slowly expands. It's actually growing. And so what you can think about is kind of an analogy with a campfire, where on a cold winter night, you want to stay close to the fire. If you were to throw more Uh, more wood on the fire or that fire were to get bigger, it would get warmer and warmer as as you got closer and closer to it. So that kind of has implications as well for as that sun continues to grow, it's going to slowly move out that certain zone, if you will, a Goldilocks zone where it's ideal for life to form. Since the nearest stars are so far away from Earth, how are you even studying what happens when these stars die? That brings up an important point in astronomy because With all the other sciences, or most of them at least, you think of chemistry, we can go into a laboratory. We can conduct an experiment with certain chemicals, and we can repeat that experiment over and over and over again. Astronomy is a little bit different because we can't just create a star out of nowhere or create a planet so we can examine life. What we have to do is use the cosmos as our laboratory. And what that means is we have to look at other things. So the sun is the clearest example of a star that we look at, but we have to look even further and deeper trillions of miles away from our home planet, the Earth. So what we do is we leverage the power of telescopes, the idea where we mix lenses and mirrors together so that we can capture light 
similar to catching water in a bucket, we just catch light in these telescopes so that we're able to start to get images of these other stars. And by looking at more and more stars, we can get a better example of the stellar population or group of different stars out there so we can start to draw bigger conclusions. So instead of conducting the experiments ourselves, we're just observing what we have at our fingertips. What can people observe from images from telescopes? Do you particularly capture images with telescopes on campus? MSU has a really interesting astronomy department because of, the, because of how broad each of the subjects that they can investigate is. They have an observing program. They have, telescope, they have access to these telescopes that are thousands of miles away on other continents. For example, in South America, in the Andes Mountains, we have a telescope called SOAR that we're exposed to. And a few years back, I was actually fortunate enough to visit it. So I had to take a nine-hour flight south. Uh, we got to the Chilean capital, which is called Santiago. Uh, we took a seven-hour uh, tram ride north into the mountains and 9,000 feet up in elevation, and we got to this beautiful landscape. It was incredibly dry. You couldn't see anything except for a little goat farm down in the valley. And that's really the key when you want to find locations for these new telescopes because you want to be away from all the light you can. The only light that you want to get is coming from the stars themselves. But you asked what I do in particular. And while Michigan State has a variety of observational programs where you literally take and examine the images yourself, I like to work with more or less what-if scenarios on the computer. We could call these simulations, if you will. And like Danny brought up a little bit earlier, we can't always make stars and we can't make planets at our own whim. We have to just look at things. Likewise, we can use computer programs to play through these what-if scenarios and say, okay, if I had a star that was this big and we hit the fast-forward button on our computer, let's play through a star's life in a matter of minutes for us. But for it, it's experiencing billions of years. And what this allows us to do is draw conclusions and say, okay, even though I can't see every star in every scenario, what I can do is prepare myself. And if I investigate enough of these what-if scenarios, then I can start to get a handle on what kind of signals we can expect, whether a star is humming along throughout the course of its life or whether it's going through a rather violent ending like an explosion. So then to call back on that example you used earlier about making a star in a laboratory, how do you make a star in a computer then? Yeah. You don't want to light the computer on fire or anything like that. Right. You, so this is where the math comes in. And I think a lot of times math gets a bad rap that, oh, it's that subject in fourth grade that, you know, I had to memorize my multiplication tables or it's super dry solving for X and all that stuff. But the more that you get into it, the beauty of math lies in the fact that you can describe the world around us. So for example... Uh, an instance in which math is used every day is at certain turnpikes and certain highways. You can't have a cop at every single mile to check if people are driving safely. And so what they use are these toll booths, and you clock in, and you mark the time that you started, you travel a certain distance, and you clock out. And they can calculate your speed and say, okay, if you went this distance and under this amount of time, then you were speeding. You don't need to waste resources. You don't need to waste people's time. Cops are doing something else to keep people safe. Math has a lot of different ways to, that you can leverage so that you can examine the physical world. And some of those are describing the different parts of a star. So gravity is the force that pulls us down here on Earth. If you trip down the stairs, if you drop something on the ground, it's going to pull it downwards or inwards towards the center. And we can describe that mathematically. And so 
we have one piece of the puzzle where we have some equation for math that describes everything as being pulled inward. But when we look up in the sky, the sun looks like a sphere or a ball. And so we need a piece of mathematics to ex uh, expose or describe the fact that something is pushing outwards. So some people may have heard of Einstein's famous equation, E equals mc squared, the idea that the material that we interact with, something called mass, is the same as energy or heat or something that causes things to move. And so by using math to build different pieces of a star and accounting for those different factors, we're able to describe a physical scenario. When you're running these simulations for the death of a star, what actually defines an explosion or another scenario? So we have different students in our research group who are investigating the different kinds or the different avenues that a star can take at the end of its life. So the, the three of them that I could think of off the top of my head are one that's rather boring is it's kind of a fake explosion or a dud, if you will, where it really doesn't have enough energy to go kaput and blow all of its material out into interstellar space. Just kind of it's a failed explosion, if you will. The second one, which is a little bit more interesting, is it implodes on itself. And you can think of that kind of like a vacuum cleaner, everything getting sucked in and being compressed down into a very tightly pound ball, something called a black hole, if you will. And the last ones, ones that I'm particularly interested in, is what happens when there is enough energy packed into that star right before it goes boom that all of those materials just get flung out into interstellar space. And we basically kind of put signposts on the outer parts of the star, if you will, and we track, okay, once it goes this far and it's moving this quick, we can safely assume that it's not going to fall back in on itself. And with that, we can deem it a successful explosion. And what happens to the star after the explosion? Like, what happens to the material afterwards? That's a good question. Ever since humans have been walking on the Earth, we've gazed up at the night sky, and we always wonder... How did that get there? How did we get there? It kind of instills that sense of wonder in us when we're little kids. And I've always chased that, which is why I'm still in this uh, field for a career. And where those materials go, they go to a variety of places. Some of them fly into other stars, and they give them different elements that they can burn, and we can start to observe those with their light. Some of them go to other clouds that will form stars in the future. Some of them will just stay as these clouds or these nebula. And the ones that are probably the most interesting to all of us listening today are the ones that land on other planets, like the Earth. All of the oxygen content in the human body, the gases that we breathe, the water that we drink, these all come from these stellar explosions. And the one big thing that ties all of humanity together is the fact that the material in our bodies was forged in a star that blew up. And so when you ask where, where do all these elements go? Some of them go into the stars that we're seeing, and some of them come from the stars that make us up today. So in a funny way, we're kind of stars staring at stars. You mentioned earlier that one of the ways that you're able to observe stars in space is through collecting the light through these different telescopes. Are there any di other different methods that exist right now that astronomers can use to also know whenever these stellar explosions are happening? There's a variety of methods that can go into whether we detect something or a star exploding or things colliding together in outer space. And the ones that I'm most particularly interested in are something called gravitational waves. 
And what these are, these are, you can think of them like ripples on the top of a pond. So as an example, if I were to throw a little pebble into a pond, it would give these very shallow waves that move out towards the outer parts of that body of water. If I were to throw, if I were to jump in and do a cannonball, I would get much larger waves that would ripple onto the beach as well. And so in a certain sense, just by looking at the waves, you can tell what created them. If it's a very shallow wave, it would be something very small. And if it was a very large wave, you could probably safely assume it was something very big. Instead of water, however, we're looking at the reality that we live in, something called the fabric of space and time. And you can literally imagine it like a piece of fabric. And what causes these waves can be a variety of sources. But in the context of these exploding stars, you can think of them, well, we're in a radio station right now, you can think of them like going to listen to live music or going to a concert. If you were to plug your ears and you were to watch the concert the whole way through, you'd get a pretty cool light show, you'd see a lot of smoke, and hopefully you'd see one or two cool guitar solos. If you flip the script, however, and you open your ears and you closed your eyes, you'd get a completely different experience. But you'd still be getting information about the concert. That thudding you feel in your chest when the bass goes real loud or when there's a high shrill on the guitar that you can feel in your ears, this is the analogy between looking at things with your eyes and feeling them with your body. And so the same game is played with these explosions. We're not looking anymore with our eyes or our telescopes, but we can set up sensitive instruments to feel the ripples and the waves that they're giving off. And this is really unique because this allows us to see and peer into these stars, thing into locations where light has never been able to show us before. These are This is information that isn't coming from the outer shell of something where light is trapped, but it can tell us about what's going on. What's the engine that really makes these stars go boom at the end of their lives? Two years ago, a group of scientists announced that they had, for the first time ever, successfully measured uh, the interaction of gravitational waves with matter here on Earth. In regards to these stellar explosions that you're interested in studying, have there been any gravitational waves that have been measured from these explosions in the first place? We haven't detected them yet, and I, I use yet very carefully. So these explosions, the ones that we've seen with light, at least, with these other telescopes, these are ones where we have a pretty good estimate about how often they happen, around, let's say, once every 50 to 75 years, which isn't too good for me, but we are actually overdue for one to happen within the Milky Way. And the reason why I say within the Milky Way is because the instruments that we use to measure these things, they're extremely sensitive. They can measure very small changes in their properties, which is how we get that signal. Now, the reason that we want this information and we need these what-if scenarios is that if these instruments that can detect these gravitational waves have a, a shape or a template that they can expect, then they have a much easier time viewing this event occurring. So an example I like to think of is where's Waldo? When we look at a book and we look for Waldo, we know we're looking for that famous uh, white cap with the red ball on top and he's got the glasses and the white and the red stripes. Because we know we're looking for Waldo, we can find him. If I just said, where's Waldo? And I didn't tell you what Waldo looked like, you probably have a headache and you probably wouldn't be able to find him either. Same cases for these things. We're showing the observers, we're saying, this is the shape that you should expect. This is the kind of signal that you can receive. 
And because they have something that they can expect and they know where to look for, then they're going to have a much easier time finding Waldo or those gravitational waves. You just mentioned that the Milky Way itself is actually due for a stellar explosion soon. What does that mean for us? We can get a lot of exciting information from something that were to go off in the Milky Way. Thus far, we've seen these explosions very far away or in galaxies orbiting the Milky Way, but one that would be so close to home would be such a rich place for information because that signal is going to be that much stronger. It's going to, we're allowed to get information that's much more accurate. You think about looking at someone very far off in a field, you can't tell the features of them very well. You just say, oh, that's, that's a person that's pretty far away. And the closer that they get to you, you can start to make out, oh, that's the color of their hair, or oh, they might be this tall. The same thing goes for these explosions. The closer they are, the better the signal, and the more accurately we can determine their characteristics. And so not only would we be able to get a handle on these gravitational waves or these uh, heartbeats that are coming from the stars, but we would also be able to tell things like, what kind of material are they made up of? How much of this oxygen can we get that's implanted in our bodies? And ultimately try to answer that philosophical question on how human beings are connected to things up in the cosmos. Thanks for that comprehensive view of your research, Mike. We really do appreciate you for sharing that with us. But what got you motivated into pursuing a career and degree in astronomy in the first place? So at my undergraduate institution, Butler University, I actually used to be a mechanical engineer. And that was kind of the classic career path that I wanted to follow ever since I was little. But a couple years into my studies, the astronomy track was offered. And I said, oh, I've always liked those, you know, the big pictures in the space books or those interesting programs on the Discovery Channel or whatnot, because I'd always had a curiosity for it. And I said, okay, I'll give it a try. And the more I, I took these astronomy and physics classes, the more I fell in love with it, because it really gave me an idea about how the universe worked. And the fun thing about studying space is it really grants you some nice perspective, that when you really zoom in way far out beyond the Earth and you look at it as a really tiny blue dot, we're really all in it together, where we're all on this rock flying around a sun, our sun, you know, orbiting around a huge black hole in the middle of the Milky Way, and it just gives you a nice perspective that you can take with you in life. And so for those students who are interested in pursuing their studies, and maybe they're going to college or maybe they're still in grade school right now, I would say keep chasing what you're interested in because the journey is a lot more fun than just doing something that you're expected to do. What are ways that the local community can get involved with amateur astronomy around here in the mid-Michigan area? We have a lot of great resources here on Michigan State's campus. If you want to learn a little bit more about astronomy and kind of the overall context about where we fit into things, I'd recommend the Abrams Planetarium. Throughout all, most times of the year, they have a lot of great shows that can talk about things from why we have seasons on the Earth to, <laughs> I was at one uh last year, and it was just a laser light show for Pink Floyd. So not as much astronomy, but because the album was called The Dark Side of the Moon, they in invited the public over. And so they have a lot of great outlets for you to, to learn a little bit about outer space. And if you're more interested in getting your hands dirty and actually maybe looking through a telescope, the MSU planet, uh, the MSU observatory, excuse me, they have nights that are open to the public. And this is a, a telescope. It's 24 inches in diameter. 
And it's a really interesting instrument. I was actually just volunteering the other night for International Observe the Moon Night. And although it was rainy, uh, there's a variety of different outlets and activities that the observatory has that the public can use. And, you know, hey, I want to learn a little bit more about space. Let me talk with some some either graduate students or experts like professors who are actually spending their time there instead of sitting at home. They, they're interested in getting out in the community and sharing their expertise with the public as well. Thanks, Mike. Hopefully some of our listeners take advantage of some of those opportunities that you gave to us. Thank you for joining us this morning for this interview. We really do appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Finally, thanks to our programming director, station manager, and general manager. Thank you to all of our listeners that joined us this week. And remember, the truth is in the science. Any comments and questions can be directed to scifiles at impact89fm.org. We'll see you all next week on SciFiles. <laughs>